Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Sense City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, Ed. Welcome to episode 15 of Canine's Talking Sense. This episode has been a highly anticipated episode back from this summer when I made a social media post in regards to research that was going to be conducted in regards to uh, synthetic training aids versus real training aids or pseudo versus real, whatever terms you guys want to use, uh, the terms the industry uses, so on and so forth. It created quite a debate back at that time. Uh, since then, the research has been done. My side of the equation with the dogs was done separately from the side of the laboratory. The interview I get to do with Dr. Paula Prada, she's now Dr. Paula Tiedemann, recently married, and congratulations. She did the laboratory analyses all to herself, away from what I was doing, so I had no idea what her results were until this interview. So, great stuff that she shares, along with all kinds of other bits of information uh, from her experience of being in charge of the forensic laboratory at Texas Tech University. She's also formerly of Swig Dog. She's also currently on the National Forensic Board, uh, specifically sensors, uh, which K9 falls underneath. Uh, so she shares some great information. So before we get to that, though, I want to thank the handful of individuals who have donated to this podcast. Uh, I put a request out uh, a couple episodes ago. Just letting you guys know, you know, I take this on financially on my own. I have no problem with that, but I would love to share even more. And to do so, it's a kind of a community effort, kind of like a PBS kind of style uh, effort here. And thank you so much to those that donated. I have already invested that money into uh, the podcast, either with technology or purchasing of more data so I can share more episodes. Um, and any of any of you guys still want to donate to the uh, podcast, you can do so via PayPal. The ID is cpf two one three seven at gmail dot com. That's C is in Charlie, P is in Paul, F is in Frank two one three seven at gmail dot com. What I will keep doing is use those donations to continue to share information I get at my fingertips or setting up more interviews or purchasing more data so I can do more podcasts. Even more, I will invest that donation into educational equipment, do more seminars or share more information out there with you guys, webinars, these different things that I've just recently started doing. Again, I'm also separately grateful for those of you that have gone to the webinars that I've put on with Stacey Barnett, and there are a few more good webinars coming that I'll be doing in conjunction with one of my former guests on the podcast, Dr. Michelle Mon. We're going to do a webinar on odor and chemistry of odor and even go into things like containment, odor movement, and so on. Uh, that'll be upcoming in November. So without any further ado, again, one last thank you to those that have donated and those that will donate ahead. I greatly appreciate it. Um, without you guys contributing, it makes it even easier now to share this information that so many of you reach out to me and, and uh, 
uh, either send me a thank you via social media or tell me what you like based, uh, based off these podcasts. So I will continue to do that. I will continue to share information for all of you that are willing to listen to that. So without any further ado, here's your interview with Dr. Paula Tiedemann. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canine's Talking Sense. On this episode, we get to talk to a friend of mine who I got to meet in person uh, just a few months ago over at Texas Tech University. This is Dr. Paula Tiedemann, but or you guys might have already known her as Dr. Paula Prada. She's a newlywed, and she has now get the fun of going through the name change, but everybody will probably know her as Dr. Paula Prada, Dr. Paula Prada Tiedemann. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Cameron. A pleasure to be here with you tonight. And again, thank you so much for spending the time to do this with me. And I want to, uh, those, obviously, some people, like I said, know you as Dr. Paula Prada uh, for some of the work you've done in the past. Go ahead and give our listeners a little bit of a background of where you've been in the, in the dog-related world and also your background on the science side of things. Um, okay, so I started my work back in 2003 um, when I started working at Florida International University. Um, I worked in Dr. Kenneth Burton's laboratory. Um, I'm a chemist by training, so I have uh, my, my education is in chemistry, both my bachelor's and PhD. And then when I finished, I went on to doing a postdoc at the University of California in Davis, and that was um, a program through the intelligence community of the U.S. government, where it was exploiting explosive odors with not only canines, but training birds or to see if other animals were feasible for such a detection purpose. And then I went on to more work within the government um, contract sector. And then the research was calling me. So I decided to jump into academia um, so I could have my own laboratory where I'm currently at. And, and kind of describe where you're at now and what you do there. So currently I'm at Texas Tech um, University in dry and arid Lubbock, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm the graduate program director for the Forensic Science Master's Program here at Texas Tech. And I have my own research laboratory, the Forensic Analytical Chemistry and Odor Profiling Lab. Currently I have four undergraduate students, three graduate students, and we do all sorts of fun projects and anything odor chemistry slash canine related. So for those who are, you know, kind of wondering with forensics, so I got to meet you in person thanks to Dr. Nathan Hall, who we've had on the show before. And I know you two have done or collaborated on work together. Um, what does the forensic lab do typically uh, when it comes in relation to canine and olfaction? Well, traditionally, all my work, anything that I do chemistry-related, I do it to enhance the training techniques or performance of canine detections, not only in the U.S., but I've had the luxury to work abroad. Um, so I'm interested in the odors that are being emitted by any training aid, um, questions as to the age of the training aids and how that odor changes over time. Um, obviously, we know in canine community that we have to change the trainings ever so often, but I want to scientifically have a validation as to when is that time point scientifically measured. Um, what new, for example, in forensic decomposition studies, anything with cadaver dogs. So I'm interested in soil analysis. Um, recently, I've started working with entomology and seeing okay. what you know, odors are being emitted, anything that could help us detect, for example, in this case, a cadaver. Um, so, like I said, it varies from explosives to drugs 
to decomp. Okay. And that's, you know, ties back into, like you said before, you, back in your uh, graduate days, you had worked with Dr. Ken Furton. For those that don't know Dr. Ken Furton, uh, just quickly elaborate on him, but also what you did specifically with him. My major area of expertise working in the Furton Laboratory and continuously now um, has been in human scent evidence. Um, we worked with Ken um, on various grants and projects to type to identify a human odor signature. I know we know that the dog is able to find a missing person to do a human scent lineup, but instrumentally could I parallel the dog's nose with my instrument? And that was um, the backbone of all my doctoral work. Uh, okay. We published even a, a whole book dedicated on that, which is titled Human Scent Evidence. Um, okay. and it discusses work that we did in the lab from storage of human odor, um, different types of fabrics that we use when we're collecting, um, making some of them better than others for storage okay. purposes. Um, so different factors all related to the human scent world. Okay. And were you there, were you part of when they were developing TrueScent, the training aids at that time? Um, a little bit after. That's okay. when I joined the team. Okay. And what was that like? What was that experience? And what did you learn from uh, the development or seeing that occur with those TrueScent training aids? Well, it was a major drop. I mean, a link because, you know, for the canine community has always been like, you know, canines, but then linking that scientific part to it, I think is fundamental. And that's where the, you know, renaissance of research today is happening. Basically, mm -hmm. that's why I think it started, where we can actually link an instrument, see what your, you know, the canine is actually smelling, or we can try to at least understand, um, form hypotheses that, you know, the canine officers can actually use in court. Yeah, and that's been, you said the right words, and that's kind of how I feel and what I've seen in this uh, day and time is it is kind of a renaissance period when it comes to detection and what we now know, uh, things that, you know, we had made assumptions on and some assumptions were correct and obviously some assumptions were very off. And even to this day, it's still, there's many things that are questioned and there's many dog handlers, trainers, practitioners who have a hard time, I think, digesting when science comes in and says, this isn't good. You know, I'll use the one example, which I use kind of regularly on the show, which is like the uh, odor cocktail method versus single odor of time. There was, there's a huge faction of, of uh, detection dog handlers and trainers that like to put all their odors together in one box and train the dogs or train the dogs on that cocktail of odors. And scientifically, we know that's fraught with all kinds of problems, correct? Correct. Um, using all the odors together, basically, is obviously the dog is overpowered by all the different scents and odors. But um, obviously, the dog needs to understand the major points. And so introducing a single one at a time, the dog can actually infer, okay, this is one. And then you introduce another one. And it's like, okay, then let me focus on this one as well. So I guess it's like a a memory that we're actually imprinting on the dog or not imprinting, but making the dog understand that it's a different set. Um, but making them all together basically damages that process. So to say, yeah, it, it, it would, you know, obviously there's going to be one odor more profound than other ones. And like you said, it's not as if they can't smell it, but there's an effect. And one thing I talk about and, and Dr. Hall talked about was when you're rewarding a dog and you have all those odors together, the dog is going to make the association to the strongest odor, especially on that reinforcement scale. Exactly. So, and that's why, 
that's where we see it on on like when we're actually running the assessments or you're actually running the actual you know you have a real case the canine is going to think well that the most powerful thing i remember you know from from this training was this particular odor and he may miss mm -hmm. something because that particular case doesn't have that one Correct. And you, you were part of the study that Nathan Hall did with the odor mixtures, right? Where you guys got to take, it was important to expose dogs to mixtures, but it was more important that the dog was initially trained on, let's say the closest to pure version of the substance and then get the dog acclimated or used to the different odor mixtures with that same scent being there just mixed with other dilutions, correct? Well, I got with um, Nathan right after that study because okay. using the same apparatus that he has, which is the olfactometer, and it's widely used in olfaction research. Um, but he and I uh, decided that it was a good instrument, especially, for example, now with the homemade explosives, which improvise explosives. You know, it's a, an odor bouquet. There's different contaminants that it's not necessarily, you know, the fuel, the oxidizer, but all these other things. And so what we did was a mixture, but now instead of the odor mixture of the alcohols like he was doing, we just decided to do an approach towards the improvised explosive. So mix, you know, the fuels, the oxidizers and contaminants like, you know, um, sawdust, sugar, which are going to be part of that odor and which is important for you to have it in your training um, so as to expose the canine to that contamination, which forms part of that whole odor bouquet. Yep. Yep. No, it's, and uh, you know, when I've had people look at the study, you know, and I've been able to kind of, you know, explain it in, in terms that obviously those of us that are, aren't as scientific or aren't as academic is I tell them, I look, you know, we initially, it's important to give the dog the clear picture first, then start adding things to it. But the one common chemical is still there despite the other contaminants or cutting agents or what have you, the dog then understands. So it's important that you start off with your cleanest version, but then it's also equally important down the line to train on all types of variants of mixtures. So that way the dog, like you said, has a clear picture of what it's expected to do despite the contaminants that exist or these other smells that exist within that bouquet. Exactly. And so the whole purpose of that um, project that we have embarked on is to kind of develop a sort of training aid that has that contamination part into it. So not just a pure fuel, not just a pure oxidizer, I mean, I don't want the dog to be hitting on anybody that has a sugar bag in their, sure, exactly. <laughs> in yeah. their home, but the dog should be able to have, okay, sugar, if we mix it with this fuel and oxidizer, that's what makes an IED. <laughs> yep. No, so, exactly. Yeah. So that's the it, whole problem in this IED situation. Yeah. So the being working some time with Ken Furton and knowing the true set. So as detection dog handlers out there, there's a number of different options they have to them. They have obviously the real substance matters that they can get their hands on to use for odor training. They also have synthetic versions. And then there's also uh, products like TrueScent. Can you explain what really the differences are between, let's say, those kind of three categories for people on the more, you know, giving you from a chemist side of, side of things, uh, give an explanation as to what, each category is and why it's different well um the obviously the real um sample is something that's obviously contaminated that's like a real drug a real explosives and that's a real training aid obviously that introduces a canine to all levels of contamination um which is in real casework that's what you know the canine needs to be exposed to now the pseudo with the, the pseudo training aids have been basically a an analysis of what that real 
training aid is composed of chemically, like the chemical composition. So out of that, um, there has been a development of over a narcotic, over an explosive odor. What are those major target odor signatures that we can get instrumentally and then developed a chemical version of it? Now, with that, obviously, it's pure. It's quote, the cleaner version of that training aid. Um, it, it doesn't have... Um, the outside contamination that a real training aid, you know, or something that like, you know, here Texas DPS will give my law enforcement officers, which is contaminated, you know, it's been in a car, it's been in whatever seizure they, they went through. Um, my pseudo is not going to have that uh, because it's clean. It was made in a lab and then it was carefully packaged and sent to the officer. So, so the drawback is that it's not going to have those additional odors in the odor bouquet. Um, why is it good? Well, it's good um, for pseudo. We've done some preliminary assessments even here in the city of Lubbock um, where they've been training on real. And when I present the pseudo there, it's harder for them to alert or give that strong response because they're not used to that. Because to them, it's like we're, we're missing the contamination factor. Sure, sure. So with that, it's kind of like it goes into the development of all the other types of of training aids that are being developed. It's either the pure in a laboratory or the real thing that we get in, in real life. So if you were recommending, let's say, to a canine unit, would you recommend that they use a synthetic pseudo product as a initial training aid and then move to the substances that they can get their hands on from the real-world environment? Or how would you recommend they begin, uh, or somebody who's, you know, got a new dog from a department and they have the ability to do what you could present to them, what would you present? Well, a pseudo, um, a pseudo training aid is a good initial um, for purposes of just sometimes it's hard to get some of these training aids in real life. So sometimes it's hard, whether it's we're talking about an explosive or a drug or even like, for example, human decomposition, those training aids are hard to come by, like the real thing. So a pseudo is a good starter. However, obviously before any certification, that canine team has to have gone through a real training aid um, for the canine team to be fully developed. Okay, good. So out there, what, um, obviously you've done some testing on this, what has been a synthetic or pseudo training aid, or, or I don't know if it's a brand or whatever you would call it, what, has, what have you seen that has been really reliable when tested in a lab? Uh, as far as brands per se, or yeah, like, like what would you like? As you guys would say, if I would go, if you're going to use a synthetic pseudo, what would you recommend a team to go with, and is it going to be different potentially from cadaver to drug to bomb, or is there one company that's pretty good at it? Um, the main, the main one that I've seen a lot of my colleagues use, and it's it's been good for initial assessment purposes, has been Scentlogics. Um, okay, that has been one that is just common um, within you know, the law enforcement agencies have, have the chance to work with. Um, and it okay. has, you know, most of the, of the narcotics and everything that they're currently needing. Um, but then obviously I always recommend, Hey, before the, the certification, make sure you introduce a real one, even though the scent logics, um, I mean, laboratory wise have even sometimes they make me test it just to see, and it, it, it has the key components. So, um, quality wise, it, it does pretty good. Okay, good. And that's, and that's a great uh, bit of information that it's been debated widely. And of course, Dr. Adebimbe has been, you know, uh, fighting his cause for a long time. And, you know, there's been, 
you know, very, there's been a practitioner that's gone out there and done their testing and they found their results. And uh, DOD, I think you're probably familiar with, has done some of their uh, testing and, and they have come across negative results. And we can all kind of hypothesize there's a lots of reasons why uh, sometimes things come askew from uh, a point of view. It could be, like you said, if you're testing a dog, and the example you gave with Lubbock, was the dogs were used to the impurity form of a training aid. And then when you introduce a more pure version of it, those dogs may struggle because they've never been exposed to a pure form of it. So therefore they may go close, but not what I'm used to and walk past it. Is that a kind of a good assumption or a good uh, explanation of that? Yes. And also sometimes that I've seen, um, I also work a lot with um, South America, Colombia and Argentina trying to extend the, the standardization of, of the canine community and how we perform and do the training and assessments. And one of the things I've come across is also the age of the training aid. Um, that's a key thing that, um, you know, sometimes we're easy to say like, oh, it's, it's handler error, um, the dog. Um, but sometimes we need, we need to stop and be like, how, how old is your training aid here? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and sometimes, I mean, obviously the behavior, the training of both the, the handler and the, and the dog, but sometimes it's also the quality of the order you're presenting to the team. Um, and sometimes I, I believe uh, as a chemist and, and something that I've always kind of been like, if you present something, I guess like when I say it in the lab, when I'm using an instrument, if I put garbage in, I get garbage out. <laughs> the same thing goes with the canine team. So I think it's, it's critical that um, within our canine community, I guess the training aid and the quality of those trainees are going to be pivotal in the performance that you get. Oh yeah. I mean, like I said, I know Dr. David would is, is going to love hearing this podcast because, you know, like I said, he, he preaches a lot of those things to the handlers that when you're using your real substance, we get it. It's good. It's good to do that. But so many are unaware of what is really, how much is it the target narcotic and how much of it is cutting agent. And you could have a significant amount more of narcotic, but if a cutting agent is stronger in its uh, what it, how it breaks down and the odor that comes off of it, it that's what happens sometimes. You can have something with a stronger amount or more substance, but the smaller amount actually puts off more odor than the larger amount. Correct. Correct. And the, like the canine, uh, it's obviously the dogs are very smart, so they're gonna you know catch on to that. So they're mm-hmm. catching on into the to the to the weaker ones, and they're actually kind of ignoring because there's not enough odor signature anymore because it's yeah. not fresh. So what you're training every time is on those weak signals. Yeah. Yep. No, and that's and that was again part of that whole odor mixture stuff. So when since we're kind of on the training aid train here with information, the what are you know? There's a lot of I'll give you an example. Actually, today on Facebook on a uh, law enforcement group chat a gentleman had some of his training aids in spice tins or spice containers and he had them all in a cardboard box together. And his thing was, can anybody give me a good recommendation how to keep my marijuana from affecting all my other training aids? And he had the photo of all. And and so I, you know, got in there and I first said, you know, one is you have them in spice tins, which are very porous type containers. So of course they're designed to put out odor. They're not anything that is any remotely or near remotely to be sealed. So, and then secondary, you want to separate those things and not have them all in one group as a, in a storage area. What are, what is, what is science or what do, 
uh, like he used to be part of Swig Dog, and we'll get to OSAC in a second. But what are the recommendations that you would make to a canine team when it comes to proper storage of their training aids? The proper storage, like I said, it's the main thing is to have different types of training aids in different containers. So the main thing is, like, obviously, they're on the road, they're on, we're on the field. It's not like a, a laboratory scenario. I understand that, but I always recommend I use, for example, the Pelican cases or something similar, um, just as the outer containment. And then within it, um, if possible, and I know it's not as practical because it's it could break, but glass is the main you know barrier that I've found um, not only for preventing cross contamination, but with laboratory studies, it holds the odor for a longer amount of time. So if we want to keep those training aids, quote unquote, fresh over time, glass is the one that makes it um, last much longer um, because it's resistant to all the temperatures. Even if it's really hot, even if it's really cold, the volatiles are going to come, you know, raise into the headspace, but it can come back down. So when we have plastic bags, you're going to lose it. So that's why over time, the quality of the training aid is going to decrease. So I always recommend, you know, if possible, glass, not anything that's plastic or any related because plastic has a lot of contaminants in itself, um, which have high abundance chemically. So the canine is going to be introduced a lot to that odor volatile in training. Absolutely. So, so glass jar, any type. So the reason why I bring this up is there's mason jars and then there's glass jars with more of the plastic style lids that you screw down and close that have a, uh, I'll give the answer, a Teflon lining to it. What would you, what is better, you know, should they just grab mason jars and use that or should they look for uh, something different? Mason jars would be my recommendation and that's what I've kind of done um, in my work in South America. I made them, I made them out of a bunch of, of glass jars. Um, the, the more glass you have, the less plastic, that's what we're going for. So sometimes they're like, wait, we don't find that. So a little bit, but not a ton of plastic. Just the least plastic you have, the better the canine team is off. Okay. So what about the plastic jar or I'm sorry, the plastic, the glass jars with the Teflon uh, style lid to that? Or obviously is that like best case scenario? If you can get that, that's even better. That's best case scenario. Yeah. So if you can get that. And obviously, like I said, um, and I always tell my officers when, when I'm watching or when I'm helping them in their training, you know, put gloves on when you, when you open them and then discard it when you're going to change a training aid. So no, don't, don't have the gloves on or, you know, when you're opening everything, cause then you just introduce all the contamination to all your jars. So little things that make huge differences. What does metal do to substances? Um, people that may, or, or I even add this metal and magnets, what can metal and magnets do to, uh, odor substances depending on the temperature for example um the metal obviously is going to have a higher rise in temperature if you have it extremely like in a field environment and you're you know training for a couple of hours out there um however the metal is easy to clean with so it's not going to impart as many volatiles if i was to run a test on the machine to see how the training aid you know capturing that odor picture um the metal is cleaner um if i just wipe it with alcohol pads it won't, you know, it won't contaminate immediate, the immediate vicinity. Okay. And now I know, obviously, certain types of explosive materials like nitrate, ammonium nitrate, urea nitrate, react very strongly with metal. Yes. So in a place of an explosive, that's where you have, like, that's something that to be cautious about if we're talking about explosive training aids. 
Yeah, certain stuff is, you know, for listeners out there, certain chemicals react very strongly with metals. Uh, also, magnets can have an effect as well. Um, do you have, you have any information you can share on that regards to like what mag, what magnets do to in a molecular level and how magnets can affect odor? Well, the odor, like, again, we're talking about odor volatiles, which are high vapor pressure. So there are molecules that are constantly in motion in the headspace above it. So the mm-hmm. magnet sometimes obviously affects this, this chemical mixture that's going on in the headspace above any sample. Um, sometimes if you have trace amounts, well, you don't want the magnet interfering with the few headspace molecules that you have above your headspace. So that's how the, the magnet basically does a, an effect on, on your odor picture. So for somebody who may not be familiar with headspace and, and vapor pressure, can you kind of explain that to them in a, in a uh, pretty simple version just so the average dog handler can go, okay, I understand that? Okay, so when we're talking about um, – the vapor pressure of, of the substance or volatility. It bas- volatility basically means the substance's ability to vaporize. So it's basically changing from the solid state to the vapor. So a volatile substance has a high vapor pressure, meaning that at a given temperature, that um, vaporization that you can find above that sample is high. Therefore, that's what allows the, the canine or, you know, to have anything that smells basically has a higher vapor pressure. Um, it evaporates quicker. So, for example, any acetone, any solvent, it's highly volatile. You, you pour it on the table and it basically dries off. You don't need to wipe it with any paper towel. That's because the, the, the vapor pressure of that substance basically makes it from that liquid state to a vapor. So for this leads back to the storage of our training aids and things like that. So as we both know, there are many uh, agencies that store the training aids in the vehicle. How, as a scientist, how bad of an idea is that? And, and what do you recommend they should do for storage when not using the training aids? So we talked about containment of this, you know, how they contain the odor in the storage material, like Pelican case, but leaving it in the car versus something else, what would you, what would be your recommendation? And also explain like kind of what happens by leaving it in the car. Well, by leaving it in the car, for example, in either very cold situations or very hot, the extreme, um, obviously the, the training is are going to have an effect. So if it's very hot, um, it's going to be volatile. You might, you know, th- those substances that we were talking about because they're in their vapor state are going to escape basically. So you're depleting the available odor that by the time you use it, you're already decreasing the concentration that you can potentially have. When it's really cold, there's not enough temperature. So when you present the training aid, the substance is kind of still in a solid sort of state state. So there's not a lot of chemicals floating around for the, for the animal to even detect. So extreme temperatures, they don't do us any good. So what I always recommend is that you take all, whatever your boxes, pelican cases, whatever you have in, in the main containment, to whatever facility you're going to be at um, so that they're not in the car in a closed system. Um, however, in some cases, like when it's extremely cold, then the car is a good option because it, it maintains them a kind of a room temperature, sort of say, if you're in the field. Uh, but but avoid, avoid the extreme of both ends. Yeah. So handlers, if you have it in the back of your car, the trunk or the hatch area, each night, when I know it's a pain in the butt, but when you're not working, get those training aids out. Or if you're going to leave the car for an extended period of time, get those training aids inside. Because 
it, here's basic super layman chemistry. If you heat anything up, what happens to it? It degrades and disintegrates and goes away. So if you leave training aids in the back of a vehicle or in a hot spot, you are damaging those training aids and, and wearing them out sooner than they need to be. So take do that due diligence to get those aids into a better uh, environment where they'll last longer and preserve a whole lot better than just having them in the back of your vehicle heating up, especially those of us that are in the south region of the United States where it just gets hot pretty much most of the year. So, you know, you know, word of wise to, is, is do what you can to protect your training aids and not leave them in the, in the heat all the time. So on to that piggybacking that statement there, how often should we train or change out training aids? Cause you and I had this good discussion when we were in person was obviously not all substances are the same and they don't degrade the same yet. We have pretty much in the industry, there's this one year standard that we technically go by on changing out training aids. Now we all know that doesn't always happen. So as a scientist or chemist, can you kind of give a, a guesstimate or, or what would be best practice and kind of like a better and best practice model for uh, changing out training aids? Ideally, I would have to say that, you know, moving away from that one year mark, I would be very happy if it was every, you know, four to six months type of situation. Um, I've actually done a little bit of work again here locally where we actually investigated the age of their narcotic training aids. Um, and they, they had them for quite a while. And even after the, the, the three months, four months mark, it starts um, decreasing um, instrumentally. So again, the dogs are, you know, they're smarter. They, they can do trace amounts that we can't even sometimes the machine, you know, obviously the, the dog beats me to that. Um, but if possible, every, like if, if somebody could tell me at least twice a year that change them, that would be the ideal. Yeah, no, I, I agree because like you said, there's so many factors in play that degrade the training aid. You know, one is how often these handlers use them and put them in places and the containment vessels they have them in. You know, we, we talked about storage, but there's also even the typical containment, which is most times some type of evidence bag or plastic bag that's sealed because they have to keep track of the weight of the narcotics and, uh, and the training aids themselves, explosives and so forth. And those things change. And the thing I find ironic is, you know, as things break down, the weight changes, but yet they have them so, you know, sealed up that really, in some cases, how much odor is getting out? And we know, obviously, it's, it's a lower amount, but, and can the dogs do this? Yes, but there's a significant amount of other things that we're dealing with, the background noise that those things are stored in. A perfect example would be, for example, in the chemistry and then slash canine world, it's like cocaine, for example. And, you know, the, the, one of the major compounds of cocaine is methylbenzoate. Um, so if, you know, instrumentally I start analyzing the methylbenzoate concentration, it's it start really decreasing, although there's contaminants besides methylbenzoate compounds that are still there, the methylbenzoate is going to start decreasing and the other ones are going to start increasing, whether by contamination or just a mixture of the chemical reaction that's going on in that particular sample. So we're losing our main, again, our main odor. Um, so that's why the more frequently you change, the better for the odor picture that the dog is receiving. Yeah, no, that's perfectly well said because there's a lot of things we talk about. And, you know, sadly enough, we've, we've, we've both probably seen it where sometimes I've seen a cocaine training aid look like paste almost. 
and there's no way that's good anymore. You know, it's definitely not putting out what we think it is, but the handlers are using that or the trainer is using that. Um, again, uh, handlers or trainers, your job is to articulate these things to your staff so that way they understand, if possible, to change out those training aids uh, more frequently than a year. If, if you know, a year is a year, and that's just the way it is, understand that you know, you've got some training aids that are going to be slightly different than what they were when you got them. Additionally, this is also why it's important to train with other units because other units may have their training aids, which could be fresher and have a, a different uh, cutting agent. If you want to that was my next that, yeah. point. Yeah, that was my next point. Like not only then to change them, but to actually, you know, mix and match your training aids. Don't always train with the same training aids over and over again because a train, a canine is not being exposed to, you know, a wealth of different odor bouquets that may be presentable because of the contamination that comes a little bit with each training aid that every officer or agency has. So training in various teams with different people, you know, not only changing your, because a lot of the officers change the scenarios. I'm like, oh, today we're doing indoor and tomorrow we're doing outdoor. I'm like, yes, but also change your training aids, you know, have another, you know, colleague that could lend you theirs mm -hmm. and practice. Uh how important is it when running a certification on a canine team to see the certification be done with training aids not known to the dog? Oh, that's crucial. Yep. That is crucial. That is like now, like we were saying, and in a little bit we can discuss about it, but that as we are drafting um, standards for this canine community, mm -hmm. that's one of the main things. The training aids should not have been part of the regular training of the canine. And on that, which I'll get to the organization here in a second, how important is a odor recognition test, no matter the detection discipline? So if you're a drug, so we already, we already know bomb dog handlers most often get exposed to an odor recognition test, but drug dog handlers very rarely do that. There's only a few organizations that I know that push it, but uh, how important is a odor recognition test for uh, detection dog teams and especially narcotics teams because they are the ones facing legal challenges? As I'll talk about in a little bit, um, as we go into like more of the drafting of the standards and best practices and everything, the odor recognition um, assessments are crucial in any of the canine detection disciplines. Whether we're talking about narcotics, whether we're talking about um, a water search with a canine, like, uh, land or water, explosives, you name it, agriculture, etc. Oh, an odor recognition basically is key before you can even move on to any other type of, of assessment. That's where you understand, or both handler and canine basically understand that that's the odor bouquet that I'm testing for, that I'm training for. Without that odor recognition assessment, I think you're, you're skipping like the foundation for that canine team. This episode is brought to you by the Sensible Canine, making sense of scent work. The Sensible Canine is owned and operated by Pete Stevens. Pete Stevens has a vast experience in detection dogs, and myself and Elliot Zibley were the first three uh, three bald guys everybody remembers us as, working together, uh, putting out various seminars under Sensible Canine, and it has since grown to what it is today and keeps Pete pretty busy. Sensible Canine is... Uh, a education and workshop based uh, business. Pete goes to your area or you come out to Southern California and go through various types of seminars where we focus on the skill sets needed um, 
most times geared towards nose work, but these days it's expanding to all types of scent work, uh, professional and sport. So look up uh, The Sensible Canine. The website is exactly that, thesensiblecanine.com. I will put a link in the show notes. Contact them, set up a seminar, or come to one of the seminars that we host uh, many times in the Southern California area. But soon, we will have our first sensible canine in Las Vegas at the Silver State Canine Facility. So again, look up the sensiblecanine.com. It's K the number nine.com for the end of that. But again, I'll have the show notes. We'll have the web link there for you. I want to take a moment and give a shout out to Dr. Sniffs Bed Bug Detection Service based out of New York. Dr. Sniffs is a supporter of Canine's Talking Sense, and I personally thank them for their support and helping out this podcast and allowing me to share information. So I want to let all of you know, if you're in the New York region or if you're a business up in New York, contact Dr. Sniffs. They are an accredited, top-notch bed bug detection service. You can reach them at drsniffs.com. That's D-R-S-N-I-F-F-S.com. Drsniffs.com. Contact them. They are one of the best in the region. Make sure your facility or your area is bed bug free. This episode is brought to you by Silver State Canine. Silver State Canine, located in fabulous Scent City, Las Vegas. Silver State Canine is a premier education and training facility. We understand many of you, however, can't get to Las Vegas. So, Silver State Canine has created our mobile classroom. We come to you. We now offer many of the classes and seminars we've held in Las Vegas, but now we can do it at your location. Some of the classes that we offer are our canine cognition class. Utilize these tests that we show you to help you pick a better dog, or if you already have your dogs, use these tests to understand your dog better. Do they have strong memory? Are they a problem solver? This information is vital to help you train your dog better. We also offer our detection through cognition class. If you're a detection dog handler, whether it be professional and or nose work, this class is a must. We give you information that you can apply that is based on science and communication so that way you can enhance your training based on cognition. We also offer our problem solving through cognition. Again, taking these cognitive tests, applying them to your training will help you problem solve some of the many common issues that are out there. In addition to that, we have our science of odor class. We also have our explosive identification and safety class. For anybody, whether you're a sport enthusiast or you're professional, we have our search strategy classes. These classes help you come up with a methodology based on practical and proven methods to help you enhance your search strategies when deploying or putting your dog through a trial. We offer these classes and many more. For further information, please contact us at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK9.com. That's Ford at SilverStateK9.com. So a common uh, rebuttal to that I have gotten more than a few times is I don't, I don't need an odor recognition test. I can clearly show in a practical evaluation the teams know odor. They know 
the handler can read that. They, the dog identifies the training aid within that environment. Why would I need an odor recognition test to validate what I already see in a practical? Why, why is an odor recognition test important? An odor recognition test basically establishes not only the dog, but actually the handler being able to recognize the response that the canine is giving, evaluating the environment, things that you can actually, you know, understanding the parameters of a search, um, evaluating the desired outcome of that search. That's where we test, you know, the how the handler responds, how the canine responds, um, introducing other scenarios like a blank search, for example. That's where the odor recognition, because you can have a dog, you know, being good on your odor, but on a blank doesn't perform really well. So the odor recognition assessment should do both. The way I explain it is an odor recognition test is a is a uh, an examination in which the standard and the protocol is exactly the same for every thing that's out. So if the lineup has, let's say, twelve glass jars within a, uh, a like basically like twelve circles, the glass jars are placed in a circle. Or let's just say, for ease of example, paint cans. You have twelve paint cans out. So everything is within a paint can. There's a straight lineup or a circle, however you want to do it. Each distractor odor is contained within the same vessel as the target odor. So when the team is being evaluated, all the conditions are exactly the same. There's not a DV, there's not like in a practical environment, you may walk, you may be outside in one area, but you may be in AC in another area. You may have wind currents going this way or that way. Temperatures within an area are different. But in a odor recognition test, you're in one room, the space is the same, all tested odors are in the same vessel. They have the same kind of con- the containment and pressure, if you want to call it that, is in the, under the same conditions. So a exam where everything is based on the same standard, it's easy or it's a much more uh, easy to establish that the dog can identify target odor despite proofing or distractor odors or blank areas, and the dog is equally correct. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a baseline where everything is tested in the same uh, standard and contained in the same way. So there's very little variances that occur, yeah. and it tells you right it's away. Basically, you're, you're controlled. Happen. Everything is controlled. You're controlled test. Correct. That's 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 what I was looking for. Controlled. Yeah. So it gives everybody it gives everybody good control. We know what we're looking at, and if the dog successfully indicates the target substance within that environment, good. We like you said. We know the handler can read it. We know the dog knows odor. So now. We then put the handler, the dog, and the target substance within the real-world environment with all of its distractors and uh, variable things that it can occur and then see them do it yeah. there. So one is your baseline control standard. Your other one is your actual environmental and seeing the dog work within an environment that it might be required to deploy. Exactly. If I compare it to something like in the laboratory, the odor recognition assessment is like when I buy a standard and I know that the chemical compound is that one that I just bought and I put it in the instrument and I know what I'm going to get. And then when I actually get a casework sample, I don't know what they're giving me from the forensic case. So I have no idea what I'm putting in the instrument, but because I knew how to run the standard, I know how my machine should you know, work. So I know what I'm getting. So in the canine world, the odor recognition assessment is basically that a standard, a control, you know, what you are getting, you know, sometimes the parameters of your search, you know, sometimes the number of targets. So that's where the handler can be like, Oh, maybe let's say in a narcotic or explosive, the dog is kind of a little weak in this particular drug. So maybe we should focus the training a little bit more intense on that odor so that by the time they get to the certification or the evaluation, 
they've already troubleshoot all those issues. Yeah, it's like the odor recognition test is your calibration. You can see it, the, the, the instrument, the dog, and the handler are accurate in identifying target despite distractor or proofing or blank. And then you move on into your uh, practical evaluation, watch the team work within the environment that they're required to deploy in or, or be utilized in. So along those terms, that kind of leads us to, you, you were part of Swig Dog, and you can briefly talk about that and then talk about what OSAC is now and what you guys are doing and what's happening. Well, SwigDog started back in 04. I was actually a student. I, I was, uh, like I said, helping um, Ken Burton when there was no documents, when it was just a blank page. And, and I helped started typing all those documents up. Um, but that was funded um, by the FBI. Um, and there were SWIGs for all different disciplines. But in basically in 2009, um, the National Research Council came with a report that's called Strengthening Forensic Science in the U.S. And it basically had a lot of the problems that forensic science has, which is the lack of standardization. Everybody does it differently, whether you're you know, in Oregon or California. Uh, we all do it differently. And that's one of the drawbacks of just forensics in general. So the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, is basically um, the umbrella for the OSAC, or the Organization of Scientific Area Committees for Forensic Science. And within that, there's a, a group dedicated to the detection dog community called Dogs and Sensors. Um, and I've been part of that. I'm actually the executive secretary uh, for the group. And we're currently drafting a total of 27 standard documents, uh, which basically, this is the difference from the SWIG dog, and I, and I know um, we kind of chatted that the other day on 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 your Facebook posting. Um, it's because Swag Dog had best practice guidelines, but what the OSACs in all disciplines, not only the dogs, but it's all of it, and anthropology, you know, drugs, fire, explosions, everything. Uh, what they're trying to do is actually make national standards. Um, basically, something that has like quality assurance that everybody that uses that structured um, document that we have the same results. Um, so it's basically a set of, of members from not only academia, but government, private sector, and we just meet up and kind of, we use the SWIG dog as the template, as the base documents, and now we're just basically polishing and fine combing, um, you know, some of those shoulds to shalls, um, some of those, like we were talking before, like how long the training is, making it a little bit more concise, uh, so that it's basically a standard that could be available. Um, and this is, it goes through a whole, like, I like guess, standard registry process. So it's not only the committee members that, you know, we make it. These documents go out for public comment. Um, and I try to sometimes, you know, send it to colleagues and everybody I know when they are actually out for public comment so that we get the canine community's feedback. Then it goes back to the group. Um, you know, we attend to those comments and then, Hopefully, at the end of the process, is basically it goes into a, a registry, uh, which is the American um, Academy of Forensic Sciences Standard Board, which we're hoping, um, you know, those, that's going to be the SGO that basically publishes the standards. So, if I'm a canine unit, how important is it to start making sure that we create our program within these parameters or these these suggested guidelines as they are now? Because how long before, uh, obviously, this becomes something that the legal system starts looking at 
to ensure canine teams are following? Well, that's the next challenge. So one thing is drafting them. And the next thing is, you know, the actual, you know, people adopting and, and disseminating the standard. And it's crucial because that's the thing. Canine, canine science, and, and, you know, we've always had it, you know, within our, our, our legal system. But what makes it a solid foundation, like any other laboratory technique, is that we're, we actually have a standard behind it and that when officers, regardless of the state where you work in, could go to court knowing that if they had that standard, that's how they trained, that's how they executed, that's how they had their whole K-19 perform, that that's going to be solidified in a legal system. Absolutely. And even if you go out there as a canine handler and you're a part of any number of the various organizations that are out there and you do their certifications, I highly recommend that you at least set up and abide by these guidelines as they are right now, which means doing a odor recognition test at some point, uh, you know, having somebody administer that for you. Also, ensuring that you're doing things, and, and again, Paul, let, let us know, but I would say double blind searches, or at least at a minimal single blind. That way, you know that this is there's little to no handler bias as best you can based on that uh, how the search is presented to you, as well as controlled negative testing. Yes, very crucial. Basically, the way that these documents are going to be structured is, like I said before, regardless of the discipline, having the odor recognition assessments, having your initial training um, for both canine and handler, and just you know continuing on to your ideally the double blind, which is, you know, the, the gold, the gold test that we hope that everybody could achieve. Um, just because it's ideal, mm-hmm. it's neutral. It's like, you know, testing that your, that your odor recognition basically is flawless. And if you're, you know, let's say you were overseeing a canine team or a canine unit, how often would you want those handlers to go through double blind, uh, searches? Let's just say in a year's cycle, how often should they be going for that? Should they do it once a month, more than once a month, uh, less than once? What would you say would be a good practice model to go by? Usually I know that the double blinds and a lot of the, you know, the response that I get sometimes that why it's a lot of people are like, you know, opposed to it is because it takes obviously a little bit more, sometimes more resources, you know, more, you know, volunteers to help you set it up. You know, the, the logistics is a little bit more complicated. And I understand that, but I would actually recommend that if you can do it at least once a month, that would be, you know, ideal. Um, obviously not every week in the training, but if you can, you know, have all your teams at least once a month, do a double blind to certify that, you know, to, to verify that all, is working well, that would be an ideal platform. Yeah, no, and I agree. And, and on top of that, uh, doing those controlled negative tests where, uh, you know, I do it in the form of games. So I kind of do one, I, I call it uh, detection roulette, where basically there's three search areas set up. Only one area actually has odor in it. So I let the handlers pick, you know, one, two, or three. And by whatever number they pick, then that's the area they go search. And they come back to me and let me know what they find or they didn't find anything. So with two areas being completely blank, I'm not dictating to them which area they go to. They picked it by a number on their own. So we add some randomness to it. And in that situation, you may have handlers that pick an area that has an odor in it. And then you have other ones that pick the areas that are blank. But at least that way, to me as an evaluator, I find it far more important when I can see a canine team come out of a search area and confidently tell me there's nothing there, 
it's easy to most times identify when there's odor present, but to come out of an area, especially if it's significant in size and say nothing is here is not easy to do. But if you have a team uh, that can come out there and do that, then you can really kind of attest the reliability of that team. Would you agree? I agree completely. And sometimes, like I said, locally here, I try to help um, the law enforcement agencies. Like sometimes with my students, we try to like, you know, because like I said, logistically, sometimes that's a little hard. You don't have the personnel. Um, you, you know, it's a little bit more complicated to set up. But at the end of the day, like you said, when you have a real casework where the area is immense or you don't know what you're being, you know, bumped into, you, you have the confidence that you did your double blind and you feel that confidence level that your canine is going to perform top notch. Yeah. And, and for me too, but kind of back on that ORT part, I like to see ORTs run in a best case scenario once a month as well, just because again, it's a calibration point. You know, it's not very hard. You know, people, if you have, again, I'll use the paint cans, but it can be simply the glass jars. You just take a platform cut circles in it and place those jars in that. At least the jars are now in a lineup or what have you. And you place random things. You know, one jar has rubber gloves in it. One jar has plastic bags in it. One jar has dog food. One jar has, a, you know, part of the dog's toy or what have you, uh, dog urine. Anything you can think of along with a few blank ones and then target substance. And seeing dogs and handlers correctly call out the location of that tells you your team is calibrated and a very simple uh, baseline model to do it. Uh, waiting till once a year to do that. Yeah, it's good. It's still better than not doing it for sure. But uh, yeah, I recommend doing it as often. It's, it's a challenge. Why not? If you, you know, none of us were forced to be dog handlers and no one that I know was forced to be a dog trainer, not that it doesn't exist, but most of us do it because we like doing it. So why not go above and beyond, especially when your position is to be kind of, you know, uh, in charge or, you know, being part of that Fourth Amendment search and seizure, right? Why not put yourself out there above and beyond than just being, oh, I, I do my three or four. I mean, you know, to, we've both probably seen this, but I can't tell you how many times I watch canine handlers come into a room, they put three or four training hides in one small, let's say a 12 by 12 or 15 by 15 room, and they'll have three odors in there. And they're like, yep, did marijuana, did cocaine, did heroin, or whatever the training aids are. And they're just training to a checklist. Yeah, it's true. And also, like, uh, sometimes people don't even have the distractors around. And so, I'm like, so, like you said, a simple lineup, and I've done it before, um, where I just put, you know, the target odor, but then I put, you know, a big old sausage, you know, there, you know, some other plastics or, you know, um, diesel fluid, something that has an intense odor to see what that would do to the canine. And a lot of the handlers are like, oh, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a distractor. What if you were searching in an, I don't know, an auto mechanic shop where you have a bunch of like, you know, odors emanating from all those solvents and liquids that are there, the dog should be able to clear the room. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, throwing that back out there, doing searches where there's nothing there, you know, you show up to training, what do you expect to have happen? You expect to find stuff. We all know we come into you know, we do traffic stops, we do things, and we're in a known drug area. So what it, do we possibly expect to find? Narcotics. So at the point when you deploy your dog, you know, you have to have the mindset. I always tell m many handlers, it's not your job to convince the dog there's odor there. It's the dog's job to convince you. And if the dog isn't convincing you, you don't make the call. You know, you have to be willing to have a dog who has a strong indication, great changes of behavior that you can 
read. And then that if a layman was watching, they would go, yep, something happened there. The dog, you know, the dog did this, this occurred. And by that, you've got something. It shouldn't be so weak that you do something, the dog does something, you do something, and you go, yeah, I think there's something there. That to me can't fly, and that should that should not be accepted. And unfortunately, we have live PD these days with lots of footage of, of handlers out there. That oh my gosh, I can't believe some of the things that these handlers are calling as alerts and, and going into vehicles and doing searches. I mean, I run a few of them in my uh, powerpoints now to basically hold our industry to kind of like don't get added to my video list because I will call you out if you do stupid stuff like that. It has a very bad, as you know, it affects all the handlers who do it right. If you do well, that, they're like, they're like, Oh, I watched on a live PD. It must be, that's the thing that I should do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, but anyway, so what are some things that if, again, as a, as a scientist, but also as a, a board member of, of these organizations that are helping us have a better scientific standard to go by, what are, what would you say are important things that need to change within the canine detection community? Um, basically, the most important thing is that, the word change. Um, I think a lot of the times it's just because an agency or, you know, wherever we're practicing this, this, this career, we've done it a certain way. It doesn't mean that we don't have to change it. Uh, just because it's always worked in the past doesn't mean that there's no room for improvement. And I think that that's one of the biggest barriers that I've encountered here and abroad. Um, you know, being open to, you know, it's, it's okay to like, for example, those ORTs, that's the place for you to be like, okay, maybe, yeah, that's a mistake. And that's the room for improvement. It's not necessarily bad. Um, and a lot of people I think have a fear that, you know, like I'm always going to be right. And, um, open to change, open to, you know, okay, maybe that's the way that we've always done it, but maybe it's time that we change it. And I think that that's one of the greatest things that the Kenyan community has to be a little bit more open to. Um, collaborating more, like I said, um, switching your training aids, working in teams, you know, a lot of us help one another. So it's, I think it's not a, an individualistic approach, but more of a team effort. And I think that that's what needs to, to expand. So that it's not just my agency does it this way and your agency does it that way. No, we're both in the same field. You got so it. We're both doing it the same. Yeah, no, and you brought up what uh, some of my other podcasts have talked about, uh, researchers have talked to, have brought up is they see the canine world and they call it, it's very tribal. There's tribes here, there's tribes there, and, they, and these tribes do it this way. And, you know, they're afraid of the other tribe down the road because they their, you know, trainer is does or likes this methodology versus that methodology. So therefore, we don't train with them. And because of that, there's these either beliefs or assumptions that just carry on from canine generation to canine generation without ever changing because they're stuck in that tribe and they don't reach out. They don't seek out, you know, potentially better information, maybe something that's baked up, backed up by data versus something that's just tradition, right? So, exactly. you know, we, this is why I love seeing the committee come together and, See, because, you know, many people, when I ask this question at lectures, does anybody know what the Fry rule is? And most of them don't know what that is. And I'm like, that's the scientific standard legally that has to be met to, to bring something to court based on science. And there has to be data behind it. And crazy enough, dogs for the longest time haven't had to meet that standard, you know, and, it, and, and in this case, it's a probable cause. So it, there's been a lot of, I think, leniency within the legal community. 
to go based off what handlers and trainers have assumed or through their experience seen, and that experience may be spot on. But now, like you said, that science is finally coming into this, we need to, as a community, keep embracing uh, some of this information and help be a part of it. Now, it goes both ways. I've seen on the academic side that I've been a part of that. Some of the stuff is just so, is written so complicated and in ways that is hard for us to kind of grasp. So we just kind of shut down and just as hard to take the information in. Yeah, and that's that's my main thing. And, and I think my engine that keeps me going, kind of making the science not to be as complicated, to be like, oh, well, you know, try to, to make it like a layman's terms, that it's not complicated, that some of the problems or the issues that you may have in the field, and that obviously because of, you know, like obviously training the canine is out of their expertise, my lab can sometimes help clarify those things. And that's my satisfaction, I think, every day when I go to work. And I work with the law enforcement canine community. I'm like, they're like, well, I never thought about that. What about this? Or like, what about the age of the training? Okay, well, let me go and check it in the instrument and tell you the age and what you're actually seeing. Um, so all those things, it gives me a satisfaction that, like you said, when it goes to court that uh, and it goes, it needs to go through a fry ruling that, a paper of flying could, you know, it's not just because you thought so, just because it worked, but because we did an experiment to verify. Yeah, no, for sure. And again, as this science and research comes out, just like I, I'm, I've been wanting to make this comment on some of the posts when people get all crazy about the science stuff and they, you know, a majority of people kind of say, okay, yep, I've seen that research that makes sense to me. Inevitably, somebody comes up and says, well, there's also this research that came out that contradicts what, you know, that research is. And just like the old joke in the dog world is two, the only thing two trainers agree on is the third one's messed up. You could almost make sometimes the same argument in the science world is there's nothing the two scientists don't agree except for the third one's research was flawed, you know. So both sides, but at the end of the day, and, and dog research we all agree on is new. But with that said, there, you know, I think uh, Brian Hare from Duke University probably said it best. He goes, yeah, Cameron, you know, despite all of the, the research that's out there and the new one that's coming out and all these things, like despite all the static, you will always see elements that hold true. There's going to be a common thread despite that static. And that common thread is what we need to work on or what we go from. You know, a researcher over here may see this and a researcher over here may say that. But you know what? If you actually look at it, there's going to be common things that you'll see. And that's where you you, you, you focus on and that's where you build your work from. So a lot of these times, like you got to see, you know, there, you know, there's questions that we come up, we post online uh, there'll be, oh my gosh, all over the place, you know, there's going to be, well, I see it this way and I see it that way. But the more and more that people interact in those things, they actually see a common thread. You know, the majority of the people based on their experience or based on their data show a lot of similarities. And that's what we... And like I said at the beginning, this is only the beginning. It's kind of like an explosion that's happening now with more technology that we have in the lab, with more, you know, sensors and, you know, instrumental techniques that I have available, then exactly, I'll contradict myself, you know, in saying like, oh, well, this machine gave me even more sensitivity. So it's constantly changing. It's rapidly evolving. But yeah, like you said, there's going to be a common denominator that we always have to be. And that's what I said. But the canine community has to be open to that. That is a rapidly evolving and it's constantly developing. So it's not a static. It's constantly, you know, improving every day. 
So since you're a chemist, I will throw a, uh, a question I asked a couple of the ones before on another podcast. So a lot of times, and you may have seen it yourself, you'll see a trainer tell a handler not at source. And then it turns into the handler trying to get the dog in some way or another closer to where the actual substance is concealed at. But scientifically, it's very easy to uh, demonstrate or prove that where the substance is may not be the best location of odor. Odor might be stronger, you know, six feet away, five feet away, whatever it is. It odor might be stronger there versus being at source. How would you explain that, or is is it off base? Is it how would you, you know, on a, on a science side, answer that question? Well, on the science side, it's kind of going back to our, our definition of the vapor pressure. Um, going to source is thinking that the odor is a solid piece of block that's sitting there. And odor is not a solid piece of block. <laughs> so yep, going from correct. there, the high vapor pressure and that odor is being immersed into the environment, basically. So it's not where you place it. If there's a high current of wind, that's going to go shifting to that place where the wind is taking it. So that's where the odor molecules are traveling to. So even if you put it on the right-hand side and the wind is going to your left, that's where the canine is going to probably have its behavior response. So that's, I guess, the, the issue is that people think that the odor is like the block that you actually placed, but it's not. It's traveling if you have a high temperature, if the room is too cold, if there's a fan in the room, if it's outside, um, you know, where the person was walking, the crushed vegetation, those were molecules that were deposited as you're going. So you can't look at it as just a solid matter that was placed out there. Yeah, no, and, and far too often, and I was guilty of it back in the day too, you know, because you know you put it in this one location, but dogs are alerting down farther away, the dog is most times right. Now, can there be chances or cases where, of course, the dog hits the first, you know, uh, shift and change of odor and, oh, there's the substance I'm looking for and responds on, let's say, the fringe area? Absolutely, I agree with that. And then maybe getting closer is better. But when you have situations, it can be very well uh, brought up or demonstrated that the spot where your substance is at is not the best spot where odor is at. So you need to trust the dog because that's what you would do in real life. Exactly. You know, if, if you didn't have your trainer there, if you didn't know substance was there, that dog responds at the location. Well, you know, what I try to bring up to handlers is you're withholding reinforcement because you think you know the answer. And all you're doing by withholding that reinforcement, because the, the dog is correct, you're now confusing the dog. And then you, you're putting yourself into the equation to help solve the problem. And all you did was tell the dog, hey, I know the answer better than you do, so just follow what I tell you, versus trusting what they know. Exactly. And basically, exactly. It's it's it's, it's an, an odor plume. That's what I call it. It's, it's the odor plume. So it's not the target odor source. I mean, yes, that's the, that's the goal that we want to. But, for example, especially in outdoor you know, environments or just there's some terrain and environments that it's just complicated. You can't control what you get. So you're not going to be, you know, impermeable to not having those fluctuations of wind or something that can affect your source. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. So I, and I hope a lot of the listeners got some information on this. And if, um, I know you and I spoke before, if for some reason somebody does have the means to, 
they need to have something test and they don't have a way to have their substance tested uh, where they're at locally. Is there a way to reach out to you or can, is there a way to people can send you an agency that may have something they want tested as far as like their training aid purity? Are they able to do that with you? How does that work? Um, yes, I have sometimes uh, the agencies send me the samples to my laboratory, just they want to see the odor picture, the type of chemicals that are being emitted, um, just to have them as part of their, their training records there when they go, you know. Yeah, no, and I try to tell many of these agencies, if you can have your training aids tested so you know what's in them. So that way, you know what cutting agents are there. You know the what the substance. Yes, your substance tested positive for the narcotic, but how do you know what else is there? You definitely don't want a defense attorney requesting your training aids, sending them to a lab, and then telling you what's in them. It's much better for you to have that chance to determine what what's in there uh, beforehand before you find out by somebody other uh, somebody else or some other means. Yes, by all means, that's what my chemical laboratory. That's that's our day and night type of workhorse. Um, when we're trying yeah. to, to work alongside officers. So by all means, people, you know, if, if any agency out there is interested, by all means, they can contact me and we can go from there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put your email in the show notes. Also going forward, me and you have already talked about this, but as uh, I have posed those questions in the past, I do my detection dog questions of the week. I now have kind of put together a consortium of all of us uh, from practitioner to academic and researcher side to get together now. Uh, I'll either post questions to our, our group there and then formulate the best way to ask it. And then we're going to post those questions online and let people get feedback because the whole goal uh, is to create more understanding and a better bridge between practitioners and academia. So that way now we're working together more closely than we ever have. And that way we are better prepared when the legal side has to look at things and make decisions. Uh, at least now, instead of being at two different camps where there's the academic side that may get pulled into it in the legal side, and that's the first time a canine handler gets exposed to it, or there's a research paper written and a canine handler or trainer is trying to disseminate that information or understand it, dissect it, uh, by doing this kind of question and answer uh, format, I hope to continue to bring that. And I really thank you for being a part of that coming up. And as well as I look forward to, you know, for our listeners to hear that, you know, I plan on doing more classes and group seminars and having uh, Paula being a part of that to be able to answer your guys' questions uh, in the future, getting here right from the scientist's mouth as to here's what you should do, here's a good practice, here's, a, here's maybe a, your good, better, best model uh, based on your restrictions as an agency or as a canine team to follow uh, versus just kind of guessing or assuming. So I thank you for being up on the show and I thank you for, you know, ahead of time uh, for some of the things that we got going down the road. Is there any good, is there any cool research projects you're doing on now that people uh, will like to hear about or is it more or less part of what's going on with the uh, stuff you're doing with OSAC and, and the uh, projects there? Well, in terms of, of the OSAC, I, I urge the canine community to be active. Um, the Dogs and Sensors Subcommittee, you can go online on nist.gov and, and just research dogs and sensors. And in the future, there's going to be membership applications available as, you know, we cycle out of it. So, and then when with the public comments come out, I urge everybody to kind of be in contact with, with that website and, and be part of that because we're going to need everybody's collaboration to actually craft those final standard documents. So I urge everybody to be a little bit more common on that. Um, as far as research, um, 
everything regarding um, explosives right now um, with the, like I was telling you the homemade uh, improvised explosive devices that's kind of uh, my niche right now uh, trying to work a little bit um, a lot with the forensic um, cadaver dogs and human decomposition odor and how that changes over time some of the of the environment being here for example like in, in dry and arid Texas um, it's a little different environment than what we've seen before for example in other another more humid area. So it's always interesting to test new terrain. It's dry here, so our canines are exposed to, to different environmental conditions. So that's what I'm kind of targeting, expanding the, the parameters that we have here locally. That's awesome. And I know, like I said, Dr. David Adebembe will be so happy when I, you know, post this episode and then I'll, I'll even do something on Facebook for him because he had been dying to hear, you know, your, your final take on some of the research that you, you know, some of the stuff that you were kind of looking into initially on the, uh, uh, scent logics products and, you know, it, the controversy that, of course, the dog world goes through when it goes through pseudo-synthetic uh, type discussion between that and real. So I know, like I said, you'll probably get a hug from him at some point if you ever see him in person. <laughs> so, so, and I'm sure hey, when, I, when I make the post, he'll be dancing and, uh, you know, you, you'll kind of laugh on the side because you'll be able to read it and see it for yourself. He'll be doing the hand dance. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I tell you what, because, you know, I've, I have seen him fight the fight for a while. And uh, so this will be great news on, on his side of things and then it'll be good honestly for people who have wondered you know there's been lots and lots of wondering and uh you know assumptions throughout the years and you know I've, I've had my own you know i've gone through and done stuff and i've seen results and and he knows that um but at the same time i wanted to take a take back take a step back and be fair in my evaluation as well so uh it backed up what i did see personally and what i was doing with the dogs in the special forces community that i was using because sometimes those training aids are what we have access to you know when we're traveling we not may not be able to bring certain things with us or you know we're in an austere environment and all we can get is a synthetic training aid to work with and we always saw great results. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, data. And then, of course, what was conflicting was what we saw with DOD. Um, and there was things there that we even, you know, had our questions about. But uh, all we could say was, hey, we did this. We imprinted here. And I, I, I hate to use the word imprint because it's not the best word. But when I, we, we so odor, odor associated in the beginning, we used the uh, set logics training aids. And then we went to the throughout our training and certifications and then real world deployments. We were some of the very few military units that were making finds in the current combat theater. And I say current being in 2018, 2019, still making finds with dogs. And we used the product. So, you know, could there be possibly generalization that was occurring? That was a question. Uh, and some sciences, scientists still believe that there's definitely some generalization. And I don't argue that too. You know, uh, we also know dogs are very unique, you know, and I know on the cognition side, doing the stuff I've done with Duke University, some dogs can be very good at generalizing and some dogs not so good at it. So did we get lucky and have dogs that generalize? And did this possible, but at the same time, you know, we were also seeking some of the stuff that you had been doing, which is on the chemistry side, giving us answers there. So yeah, like thank I you for, before, for doing that. Pseudo sometimes, like you said, it's, it's sometimes difficult environments that you can't get these, these training aids available to you. And it's better to have a pseudo than not have at least any training at all. So that's what I'm saying. Sometimes every agency has its different, you know, obstacles and you've got to work with what you have. Absolutely. Well, I thank you very much. I will put in the show notes if you're okay with it. Yes. I'll put your email address there. Yes. And for people that have questions or want to ask you more, uh, they can do that. 
and uh, of course, like I said, we'll be making posts, and uh, I'll be sharing the information that, that you are putting out from the committees as they as this develops more with the standards and, and practices that are coming out. Um, so, uh, you know, anything you feel is important. I'm sure we're going to probably end up doing another show down the road, kind of, <laughs> you know, piggybacking this one. But thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on here. Thank you, and, Cameron. And, sharing your and I hope this is, is helpful to our community and I hope it continues to grow and, and, you know, be better at what we do in this canine world. Absolutely. And like I said, I look forward to collaborating more with you and Nathan and uh, we'll kick around some ideas to kind of help our community uh, detection by having, you know, a couple of us in, in a resource at one location where everybody can kind of do a round robin learning kind of concept or even doing practicals. I think people would get a lot of benefit, you know, get to hear some classroom, but then we go out in the field and or we set up some training and they get to see some stuff yeah. there, right there in front of them. Yeah, so. definitely. Definitely. A lot of projects growing. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, thank you so much. And everybody, if, like I said, if you have questions, feel free to email me at Ford at SilverstateK9.com. That's F-O-R-D at SilverstateK, the number nine.com. And until the next episode, we'll see you then. That concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm sure some of you are walking away surprised. I'm sure some of you are walking away maybe a little more confused. Um, what I can tell you from the dog side of the research, we had the same results. The synthetics, specifically set logics, uh, performed the best when we introduced dogs to set logics both on cocaine and RDX. The dogs trained on ScentLogic's cocaine and RDX alerted to the pure forms of cocaine and RDX. That was completely independent of Dr. Tiedemann's research. The amazing and cool thing that we discovered was the results were the same. So very, very interesting stuff. Um, that research that Dr. Tiedemann has done, I'm sure will be posted in some way or another they have to follow certain protocols and things like that. As soon as those things come out, that'll be, of course, shared to everybody. I have really enjoyed uh, this opportunity to be out here sharing information with you guys. I look forward to sharing lots more information. We get some great things on cognition coming up, uh, some great interviews. Um, as some of you have seen on webinars, I'm sharing more and more information in regards to cognition. Um, the webinars are a lot of fun. I'm allowed to uh, use video on there, so it's a little bit easier in the podcast format where it's all voice and talking about things with the webinar. I'm sharing via the PowerPoint and videos and things like that. Uh, there's some great webinars coming up in November and in December in regards to uh, science of odor, chemistry of odor, and one of my former guests here on Canine's Talking Sense, Dr. Michelle Mon. Her and I are going to be doing a webinar in November uh, going over chemistry of odor. So with that said, again, I want to thank everybody for your support, your donations. It's meant a lot to me, and it really allows me to continue to share this content with you guys, share the information that I'm learning from academic world, and I enjoy kind of being that in-between person between the academic world and the practitioners and any questions you guys have, 
any comments, please feel free to contact me. Many of you do. You send me questions all the time. We discuss or talk over social media, things like that. You can email me, Ford, F-O-R-D, at silverstatek9.com. And again, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Until the next one, I'll talk to you then.